everyone. Welcome to Making It, our weekly podcast on building a great business right here in Egypt, brought to you by Enterprise. This season is sponsored by CIB, the partner of choice for CEOs and leaders of businesses at all stages of their growth stories. And by the United States Agency for International Development, which has a 40-year history of inspiring Egyptian success in partnership with the government and the people of Egypt. USAID promotes an environment where all groups in Egyptian society can lead healthy and productive lives. In today's landscape, diagnosis has become the world's first line of defense against the COVID pandemic. And as we wait for a vaccine, masks, testing, and quarantine are the only way to contain the spread and keep some form of business wheels turning. But before COVID became our primary health concern in Egypt, it was hepatitis C, and before that, diabetes. And across the world, from chronic disease to full-blown pandemic, the one thing that rings true is that without diagnosis, we really don't stand a chance. After all, you can't fight what you don't know. Now, with increasing economic hardships, rising medical costs, and the majority of testing paid for out of pocket, access to affordable, quality testing has become more essential than ever. And when Dr. Hinda Sherbini took over her mother's testing facility in 2004 to create Al-Mukhtabar, her mission was to build a business that made quality testing accessible and affordable. 16 years later, she sits atop a company called Integrated Diagnostics Holding, the first ever Egyptian company to list on the London Stock Exchange as a standard segment listing, raising $668 million in its 11 times oversubscribed IPO. Formed in a merger between Al-Burg and Al-Mukhtabar in 2012, the company grew to incorporate labs in Jordan, Sudan, and Nigeria, serving over 7.5 million patients last year. Dr. Hind breaks down for us how consolidation enabled the economics necessary to make her labs accessible. And we discuss how the groundwork she set for institutionalizing her family business paved the way to becoming the investment-grade company it is today. But before we begin, we should point out, this interview was recorded in August, and the COVID situation in Egypt and neighboring countries has since changed. Private sector testing for COVID was restricted in Egypt, but in its latest earnings release, IDH reported a ramp-up of the house call service and a higher demand for COVID-19 indicative tests. With that being said, here's Dr. Hind speaking with Hishem, our executive editor and co-host of Making It. Dr. Hind, diagnostics. This is a big time for you guys. You guys are shining nowadays. I don't know if we're shining or not. We're shining all over the world, maybe in Egypt. Um... Not that much. But in general, the whole field of diagnostics and the importance of testing is kind of, you know, now a thing. Don't you agree that people are kind of recognizing that more and more nowadays? Yes, it's very important because when you look at the COVID pandemic, the diagnostic part is really the initial step um, in order to know if somebody is infected or not, to keep this person away from other people, not to infect them. And also to treat this person and try to get him better. So you're absolutely right. Right. The last time I remember diagnostics was like a big thing in the press was, remember that whole Theranos scandal? Yeah. Back then, yeah. Did you ever read the book about that, Bad Blood? Actually, somebody gave me the book. Uh, I used to hear a lot lot of questions about her and about the company uh, in investors' meetings. And people were really fascinated by what she was doing. And then all of a sudden... (laughs) Uh, you know, it, uh, it just went out as a, a very big scandal and so on. So I, I read some of the book, not all of it, but I know the whole story. Yeah. 
as an entrepreneur in the diagnostics field, did you kind of smell the BS before the scandal broke out? I was aware, you know, because people kept on asking me about this company and, and what do you think about it? And is it a threat to your business and so on? So I was interested to try and get more information about the company before the scandal, before anything. And I couldn't find any scientific information about the way she was doing, because the, the thing is, she was doing the tests with very small amount of blood. And um, supposedly that this was the new, you know, the new way of doing the diagnostic tests. As being a pathologist, I tried to understand how she was doing it and the science behind it. But there was nothing published about her, nothing about the way she was doing this and or any scientific data. So I, I was a bit skeptical, but I didn't know, of course, the whole thing. I, I did not anticipate this whole scheme and this whole story. No, I, I could not. Uh, I bet no one kept asking you about her again after that. One of the investors actually gave me the book as a present. <laughs> wow. <laughs> people were really fascinated by what she's done. And she has a lot of big names on her board. She had a lot of investors and people who believed in her story. Massive. Henry Kissinger uh, was on there. I know Bill Clinton was promoting her. You know, yeah, she had a lot of big names on there. So COVID-19, like we said earlier at the start, biggest thing to hit the diagnostics industry for some time and arguably ever, I think. Um, obviously, it's a tragedy. But from a purely business sense, for the industry, has it been a blessing or a curse, you would say? Has been a a curse at the beginning because people were afraid, you know, to go out of their houses. They were afraid to go to labs, to clinics, to anywhere. Uh, they were afraid to contract the infection, so they were staying home. Some of the countries, even as you know, they had a complete shutdown. So it was a curse for every business. Any interesting trends you can tell us? Jordan actually was a, was a success story. They were very strict about their measures since the beginning. And, um, and I think it's, yeah, it's one of the success stories in the region. How much do you think maximizing the number of institutes and organizations that were allowed to test, how, how big of a part do you think that played in making Jordan a success story? Uh, I think they, they had two important factors. So they had a complete shutdown at the beginning and also mm -hmm. they had the testing. Testing is quite important because when you know that you're infected, then you keep away from infecting other people which is the main preventive measure uh, that you can take in order to minimize the infection is to keep away from infecting other people. And you, you cannot do that unless you know that you're infected or not. So it's, um, it's a crucial point. And I think, yeah, it played an important role in minimizing infection in Jordan. All right, let's start from the beginning. So when did you realize you wanted to be a doctor? So it wasn't really, you know, like somebody who's dreaming to be a doctor. I come from a family of doctors. My father was dying for me to be a doctor. He thought this was, you know, the ideal profession for a woman. For and a woman especially or just yeah, in... Yeah, no, he thought that this was a good profession for a woman, I guess. This is how he thought about it. So he convinced me. How did he convince you? He had his ways. <laughs> He's dead now, but he had his ways anyway. He, he convinced me that this is the best thing for me. And I was convinced. The reason why I was asking you about how your dad convinced you is because my dad totally and utterly failed. It was his dream for me to be a doctor. 
he started indoctrinating me and, you know, brainwashing me from the time I was four. He had me convinced I was going to win the Nobel Prize in medicine at seven or eight and was so angry and mad when I told him I was not going to be a doctor. It crushed him. He didn't speak to me for two weeks. Wow. Yeah. Was he a doctor? He was not. He was an engineer and he wanted a doctor in the family. I came, I come from a family of engineers. You know, we all know us Arabs, you know, from that generation. All we know is engineer or doctor. But now I'm a podcast host. (laughs) So why, why did you decide not to be a doctor? I, I did biology in university, kind of started out my first couple of years thinking about pre-med. And as the bio courses piled on and the OCHEM courses piled on, I was like, this is not for me. It, like, it'll actually be a danger to patients if I become a doctor. And um, I kind of drifted and went into journalism. And here I am. But this is about you. So back to you. <laughs> was your mother Bordeaux influential in that decision? No, my mother, my mother, she's very liberal. She wanted me to have an easy profession. She knew that being a doctor is quite difficult. It's a long way. You have to study a lot. It's not easy. So she wanted me to have an easier life, I guess. She didn't say anything. She was not objecting for me to be a doctor, but this was not her choice. Right. For the uninitiated on our audience, Dr. Hin's mother is Dr. Momina Kamil, who founded MK Labs, which is the progenitor of IDH. Um, Where'd you go for med school? I went to med school in Cairo University, actually. And then I went to New York, in New York Blood Center, to work with my thesis there. And then, you know, they were kind of working with the CDC at the time, CDC, the Center of Disease Control in Atlanta, Georgia. So um, they were doing all their molecular testing there. So I went to the CDC and, and worked at the CDC. At the same time, I was doing my MPH in Emory University. So uh, I stayed in Atlanta, done my MPH and also the molecular biology work that I was doing, working in hepatitis branch in the CDC, uh, and then came back to Egypt again. Was this an interest after you got into medicine or was this, you kind of had this idea that you're going to come over and take over the family business? When I was studying medicine, there was a lot of... um, other specialties that I was interested in. I decided that I'll go into pathology. And then I was very much interested into molecular testing and all the new things. This was quite new at the end of 1990s. So this was like 1998. So that's why I went to the state and I started working at the CDC. Can I ask you, how did you get past the lab work all those years, because that was really one of the reasons that kind of pulled me away for biology, the long hours in the lab and then waiting for results and the results don't come out the way you wanted. Like that was just so, 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 so frustrating. Like how did you survive that? You know, when I was in the States, it was all about research and I was at the best, you know, in the best place where you can have everything available, uh, the best brains. And I was also studying MPH, which is Masters of Epidemiology. So I was also studying how to do a research properly and so on. It's very interesting. It's kind of you're trying to solve a problem. And there are a lot of thinking that you put in every research that you're doing. And it needs a lot of patience and perseverance. But the results are quite amazing when you get them out and when they make sense. And this was very interesting for me. And I could have done this forever. However, again, my father, he wanted me to come back. (laughs) So when I came back to Egypt, we don't have all the availability of things like in the States. You don't have the research uh, mood in Egypt. You don't have also the money to do that. Yeah. 
So I had to shift to the more practical part of, you know, the diagnostic part, dealing with patients and so on. When did you realize that going into business was the thing for you? I just shifted from research back to clinical work and I started working with my mother in her private lab together with the university. So I was teaching in university, working there, and I was also working in her private lab. Her lab, MK Lab, was known for its high quality and a good service, but it was only present in Cairo and a few labs in Cairo. However, the rest of the country was not present in the rest of the country, and it didn't really make sense to me why should this be available to only a small percentage of people? People have to travel to get properly tested. This didn't make any sense to me. So I thought, no, we need to grow the business. We need to make it more institutional. We need to have a quality system in place. We have to have every specialty with us and so on. So it started from this idea. And um, in order to do that, you need to have some business background. So I went to the AUC and took a management diploma. And then I went to London Business School and I've done my MBA. But this was later. Wow. Classroom to classroom to classroom to work to classroom. Yeah, you need because we're not, you know, in medical school, you do not take any of the stuff. You don't take any of the management or marketing or HR or accounting or finance. You don't get any of these. You only study medicine and it's quite different and you need to understand the business part in order to really have a, a proper business. So you took over the company back in 2004. Was it a fulfillment of a dream? Were you kind of groomed for it? Were you excited or was it a burden for you because you have to carry on your mother's legacy? What were your feelings? No, it wasn't a company then. It, it was a lab. And I decided to make it a company in 2004. I decided that this should be a company and it should be, you know, properly run and we should have a financial department, we should have an HR department we should, and so on. So it, it wasn't a burden and nobody really pushed me to do that. It's just kind of the evolution of the business. And if you are somebody who wants to do things correctly and properly, you need to do it in this way. You definitely clearly are a hard worker. Like, 2004 to 2020, you know, the company has had so many milestones from the expansions, both in product offering and location. You had the mergers and acquisitions and the blockbuster IPO. You've done it all in a very, very short time. So congratulations. Thank you. Walk us through that growth strategy. In broad terms, how did you execute on that vision? It was uh, building a company from scratch. And then uh, trying to uh, offer, you know, the whole spectrum of testing and also offering it to a high quality. So uh, we aimed at getting accredited by the College of American Pathologists. So we started working in this to get accredited since 2007. Uh, we were the first uh, lab to get accredited in Egypt in 2010. And you need to, to renew this accreditation. So um, right now we're, we're still the only uh, lab in Egypt that is accredited by the College of American Pathologists. I see this as a great privilege. That's amazing. Why are you guys the only one? It needs a lot of work and a lot of resources and commitment. So when you look at, you know, labs in other countries, even in neighboring uh, countries like in the GCC or, or in Jordan and neighboring countries, they need to get accredited because that's a requirement from the government or a requirement from uh, insurance companies and so on. In Egypt, it's not so. Uh, so it's um, something that we have done because we thought this is quite important to uh, 
to make sure that we're offering the best quality um, service to our patients and our customers. At that time, we were working um, with with the American embassy. We were doing uh, some of their testing. And um, I got help from them, you know, telling me about the importance of the cap and that's the gold standard in the laboratory business. So I was motivated and uh, we started also um, implementing it and getting everybody, all the team in our lab uh, excited about it. And we started the work. So this was an important step in our uh, growth. A medical service and healthcare needs to be built on quality. It's not about growth and it's not about just, you know, getting the service, about getting the highest quality service to the patient. As Theranos has taught us, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, 70% of the diagnosis are based on laboratory uh, tests. Wow. So if they are not correct, then everything else is not right. So it's the initial point in the entire healthcare system. Absolutely. So you get the quality set up. What was next? We got the quality and then the growth of our lab chains. So we wanted to be everywhere and to provide the same service everywhere. So if you're in Upper Egypt, you get the same service as if you're in Cairo, same as in Alexandria, same as in Delta and so on. So this was also another dream of mine. I wanted to have a consistent service all over the country. Another one also was building the company itself in terms of, you know, the back office. So we had a very good um, team of doctors, pathologists, and chemists working with us. However, we did not have the, the back office. We did not have HR systems. We did not have financial department. We did not have proper you know, marketing department and so on. So I started building all the back office. And after we finished that, we started by getting into other countries and um, the, the M&As and so on. How crucial was private equity to this growth? Uh, it wasn't really a crucial part. We did not really need a lot of funding. Mm -hmm. uh, private equity came during the, the merge. So we had a merge before the IPO. And uh, the merge was with a private equity fund, uh, which was a brush back then mm -hmm. uh, in 2012. They have already bought Elborg Laboratory in 2007. And they wanted to exit. So for them, uh, this was the ideal uh, solution to merge with us and exit the whole business. If private equity wasn't crucial, what was in it for you? Why did you take the, the deal? I took the deal because it was a win-win situation for us. The private equity wanted to exit mm -hmm. and we wanted growth. So we wanted more consolidation in the market. And they wanted to exit. So this was the ideal scenario for both of us. Right. You guys merged companies. Was that tough, that whole process in trying to implement the standards that you had in your facilities to the company that you merged with, Alborg? We actually merged not only Alborg. So we merged Alborg, we merged Biolab in Jordan, we merged Atra Lab in Sudan. So we had three companies uh, that we merged together with in Muqtabar. Um, there was a culture issue that we needed to overcome and also a quality issue that we needed to work on. So we started working on, on these two aspects and um, standardized everything before the IPO in 2015. How strenuous was that process? I mean, it wasn't very easy because at the same time, we're also building our mega lab 
which was uh, the first mega lab in Egypt with all the new uh, systems from Roche, Siemens, and it was quite, this was also another milestone for the company. So we've done both, you know, merging the companies, doing our mega lab before doing the, the IPO. It wasn't easy, but it was doable. Um, after that, as Abraj was looking to exit, Actis comes in in 2014 with a $113 million investment. Uh, did you guys pick Actis? Did Actis approach you guys? How did that deal go through? So Actis approached us, and as I said, Abraj wanted to exit. Right. Part of this uh, was a diversification, um, you know, decision as well, because you know, like my mother, she started this business since 1979, and she had you know everything put in this business, and part of it was to diversify. So this was the idea for her, and I knew that Actis were quite good private equity partner that worked with the very prominent uh, institutions. They had um, also um, very good uh, history in Africa, you know, their connections in Africa that would help the company. So this was the idea behind Actis. So 2015 was the milestone year, the first Egyptian company to IPO on the London Stock Exchange, not as a global depository receipt, but a standard segment listing. Um, Must have been a big year for you guys, right? Yeah, it was. I mean, we we had a lot of uh, traveling, a lot of uh, meetings, and um, it was definitely a big year. Yeah, but it was quite successful. So one of the things that really, really, really interested me about the IDH story was that you had kind of kicked off this trend of African companies going to the LSE. Uh, but you also are at the cusp of this trend where Egyptian and regional family-run companies are becoming full-fledged corporations. So my question to you is, can a family-owned business achieve the same level of growth as a corporation, or must it evolve out of that? I think it must evolve, definitely. What's restricting them from achieving that growth? When you have a corporate, even if it's a private, uh, doesn't have to be a public you know, company, but having right. a corporation, you have people who are um, more or less independent. They are not really... Um, emotionally involved with the business and that's important and also you have people who are uh, very um, pragmatic uh, and look at the business in a pragmatic way and you can also have talents that are not essentially part of the family and they can have uh, managerial and directors roles which is not the case in the family-run business this is now something that other african companies are doing but it wasn't the case back then. You were kind of pioneers in the whole thing. We're kind of pioneers and it wasn't easy. And there are a lot of requirements that uh, we had to do and a lot of things that we had to go through. But we started actually because the company was quite ready. So we were not really the standard uh, family business. We were quite... Um, You've institutionalized. Yeah, yeah. Long before the IPO. Right. So it wasn't a hard sell for investors on the roadshow then? No, no. But still, we had a lot of things to be implemented before the IPO, but it wasn't very difficult because, yeah, as you said, we had a lot of things done before. So it wasn't difficult at all to commit to the listing regulations? No, no. We were already a company with the board uh, members and so on, but we had to change the board members to have more international independent members, two of the independent staff partners. So we had to make changes at the board level. 
And there were a lot of the steps that need to be done to have, you know, the same auditor for the whole company and stuff like that. But it wasn't very difficult. As I said, we had things done starting from uh, years ago. Yeah, your board of directors is actually one of the most impressive, like in emerging markets, uh, European and Egyptian business leader. Your chairman is a member of the House of Lords. How did you manage to rope those people in? Yeah, we, we wanted, as I said, to have independent uh, directors. And uh, we looked at having people with experience, either having experience in the field or having international experience and work in our part of the world, as well as being members of other, you know, listed companies so that they would give us the experience of the London Stock Exchange and so on. So this is why we, we approached these people and we were lucky to have them accept to be members um, of our board, either the chairman. Was it tough the... convincing them? No, not really. No, they liked the idea and they liked the business and they were convinced about what we were offering and, um, and they were quite uh, enthusiastic to be on board. What was your pitch to investors, really? What was the investment case that you made for IDH? Yeah, so the investment case was really based on Egypt as being the second largest country in Africa. Having, um, you know, IDH as a main uh, diagnostic provider and the gap between the supply and demand in the diagnostic business and also the high prevalence of a lot of chronic disease that necessitate uh, lab testing and our high quality uh, service uh, that we provide, our culture and, and relationship with all stakeholders, um, from companies, from insurance companies to doctors to uh, our also well-known um, brands. These were the factors that we really um, talked about. Um, the IPO was 11 times oversubscribed. Yeah. Wow. Uh, did you expect it to get this big? No. I was actually on the road show, um, me and, and the IR and uh, our um, CFO. You know, I was talking and talking and saying the same thing over and over. But uh, I was glad that people liked the idea and liked what we were telling them and they were enthusiastic about it. Were you surprised, though, by how oversubscribed it was, the demand for it? I was seeing people, you know, happy about what we were telling them and uh, they were happy about the story. But 11 times, I wasn't expecting the 11 times. We were happy and, and going to London Stock Exchange and ringing the bell and all this. Is, how was that feeling? The entire LSE looking at you guys. No, it was quite nice. It was a good uh, moment. Why go to London? Why not the EGX? Back then, it wasn't very easy. As you remember, we had the revolution, the first one, and then the second one. And we had a lot of changes going on. Right. So it was a timing issue, actually. So we went to uh, London. Any thoughts of a dual listing down the road? The EGX, maybe? I'm always thinking about that. I think that's our natural uh, route. We have to be listed in Egypt and we want to be listed in Egypt. So I think uh, this is actually something that is going to be done uh, in the future. Any thoughts on when? Any timeline, time frame you have in mind? Uh, I really cannot give you any time frame now. Can we say soon at least? Yeah, we're working on that. We really want to, uh, to be listed in Egypt. Absolutely. All right, I think now's a good time for a quick break to thank our friends who helped make the show possible. Making Data is brought to you in association with USAID. For 40 years, the American people through USAID have invested over $30 billion to inspire Egyptian success in partnership with the government and the people of Egypt. 
USAID promotes an environment where all groups in Egyptian society can lead healthy and productive lives. So you were mentioning earlier how mergers and consolidation really played a big part in making you guys the market leader. Um, why consolidation and not kind of organic growth? No, we've done the organic growth. I mean, um, Al-Muqtabar has... Well, I mean, what well, I guess not exclusively the organic growth. Healthcare services is becoming really very expensive, especially if you are going to provide a high quality service. It is quite expensive. And in order to decrease costs, consolidation is very important. So when you consolidate, you're able to decrease costs. So you're able to provide a high quality service at an affordable price. Right. Given where we're working, given Egypt, given the, the affordability of the Egyptian population, you have to keep this in mind. And also, um, or most of the what's paid in healthcare is out of pocket. So we really need to think about the affordability. And consolidation is the best way to go for that, correct? Definitely consolidation is the best. If you do it right, it's the best way to decrease costs. Yeah. Has that been happening? Like have, have costs decreased both for you guys as an operator and for the consumer? Definitely. I mean, if we were not able to do that, I think we were not going to be able to survive all the country went through, especially with the devaluation at the end of 2016. Mm-hmm. Everybody was very skeptical, especially investors, you know, foreign investors who were very skeptical when we told them that we are, were going to have the same margins. We had a major devaluation at the end of 2016. I mean, the, the dollar went from eight pounds to 18. Right. So this was dramatic. And when you look at all consumer businesses, prices were raised. Inflation by was huge. Yeah. Inflation was 70 percent. So everybody was raising the prices dramatically. And we only raised 12 percent. And the idea was that. I do not want to burden the people with more inflation, especially that we're working in healthcare and we have also uh, a commitment and we have, a, you know, it, it's not only business, it, it's also healthcare, which is quite important and crucial. And for us to be able to do that and keep our margins more or less intact uh, was quite a challenge. And nobody expected that. And nobody believed us when we went and, and told them that we were, were Did you have to push us. this through the board? I had to, yeah, yeah. I had a lot of arguments. Was it a challenge? Did you get a lot of resistance, huh? Yeah. And ultimately, that boiled down to your consolidation plan from early on. So if that prep work and the consolidation didn't happen, it would not have been possible for you guys to keep the margins as they are. It would not have been possible given that we're serving around 7 million patients. This equation cannot work. You know, you need to have this consolidation in order to do it to um, decrease costs and serve as many patients as you can and also make it affordable and also, you know, keep your margins. Right. But before the merger, Al-Muqtabar and Al-Burg were kind of some of the biggest players in the field at that point, correct? Yes. Did the regulators give you any hassle over the merger? No, not really, because the market is highly fragmented. It's very fragmented. You look at the one uh, doctor lab and you have more than 5,000 then you have other chains and then you have the, the university and then you have the military labs and then you have the, the ministry uh, of health labs. And it's very fragmented. We're just a small part of the whole pie. So we predicted at Enterprise a lot of through conversations with industry leaders, including yourself, that 2019 was going to be the year of consolidation for the healthcare market. That didn't really happen. Why is that? <laughs> the problem in healthcare is that 
most of the institutions in healthcare are run by doctors, unfortunately. Okay, please explain. And when I, oh yeah, when I say unfortunately, it's because doctors are quite good in their field, but they are not business people, and they are they do not understand the business background of of, of things and how they should be done properly and so on. So everyone has his own, you know, uh, business, wants to keep his own business, doesn't really understand. The market dynamics. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And when you look at how fragmented healthcare is in Egypt, uh, this is why the quality is not consistent. This is why the, the costs and affordability for patients, the costs are not consistent. What is going on in Egypt in healthcare does not really help uh, things getting better. That's interesting. So even from the quality side, consolidation is kind of helping the industry or helping the consumer. But back to the original question, which is why 2019 was not the year of consolidation. You were saying a lot of doctors don't really get business. Why 2019? Because still all the, most of the medical institutions are run by doctors. Uh, mm -hmm. So they don't get this part, the business part, which makes it more difficult. So how come the top five players in the market don't just approach them and be like, hey, we would like to buy you out, would like to bring you on board, bring your clinic into the IDH family, for example. Why aren't people selling? Why aren't, you know, the big players buying? Because they're always thinking that we can do the same thing so that we want to do it on our own. Right. Everyone has the IDH dream? Yes. Yes, absolutely. Um. Do you expect consolidation, especially after the whole COVID crisis? Maybe 2021. You expect it next year, huh? Yeah, I think so. I think people are going to, to be more aware of the importance of consolidation. They're probably aware now, but there is no time in 2020, I think, for any uh, consolidation to happen. But post-crisis, you would think the crisis has now like cemented this idea that, no, we need a quality healthcare, uh, quality diagnostics industry in place. Absolutely, yes. So I also wanted to talk about another facet of your growth, which is the expansion. Uh, you guys operate 450 labs in Egypt, Sudan, Jordan, Nigeria. Uh, why did you decide to go abroad when there was space for you guys to continue in expanding in Egypt? With the merge with the Borg, uh, we already have acquired Biolab in Jordan. It's a very good lab, actually. It's a capacated lab, uh, the second biggest in Jordan. So it was a good lab to be acquired, and this was part of the merge. Going to Nigeria, the idea was to try and replicate what we've been doing in Egypt, elsewhere in Africa, and we looked at Nigeria because it's the biggest uh, country in Africa. And we don't think both ideas are exclusive. I mean, you can still grow in Egypt and grow outside Egypt as well. But other countries with similar market dynamics? Yeah, we were looking at a big markets, um, also markets where there is a demand for a quality, uh, uh, quality lab. So more or less the same dynamics as in Egypt, yes. So how does Egypt distinguish itself then from markets like Jordan, from markets like Nigeria and Sudan? Uh, so it's a big country. Uh, there is a high prevalence of a lot of chronic diseases, unfortunately. So there is a need for uh, laboratory testing. Um, also, in, in Egypt, when you compare it to Nigeria or to Sudan, you know, the, the healthcare is, is much more advanced. There are a lot of other things like IT systems, um, infrastructures, and so on that are 
more advanced in Egypt than elsewhere in Africa. So this also right. helps because our systems now are all based on, you know, on IT infrastructures and systems and so on. So that's quite important. Which country is giving you the biggest growth? We're seeing growth everywhere. Still, Egypt uh, has the highest growth. The combination in Egypt is quite attractive. You have a country with a lot of infrastructures put in place that help the business. You have a growing population. You have um, also the healthcare infrastructure that is put in place. A lot of good clinicians that also ask for lab testing. So you have this attractive combination. And then you have the supply that is quite low for what is really provided. We were talking about your board of directors earlier. How important was having that independent level board for the growth of the company, not just for the IPO, but for the actual growth of the company? I think it's quite important because you get a lot of diversified views and independent views that are pragmatic. They are not really emotionally involved with the business. And uh, they give you an independent view of growth and independent view of opportunities that you see uh, around you. So that's quite important. You know, having a family business and run it as a family is not bad, but it's just that you need to have this um, impartiality. Yeah, in a way. And having the systems and institutionalized business is quite important. Right. IDH is in a unique position. You guys have been around for a while in Egypt. You are in a position to kind of give us a diagnostic history of Egypt. So 2020, we all know there's the coronavirus. Walk us through some of the health trends that you've seen over the years. What were Egyptians testing for? What was the country's biggest health concerns over the years before COVID? One of our main concerns was actually HCV, Hep C infection, uh, right. where we have the highest prevalence all over the world. And that's uh, an issue that the, the government has tackled, you know, and tried to find solution for and, and gave, uh, you know, free diagnostic and free treatment. Also, diabetes is one of our main issues in Egypt and one of the main concerns of, uh, of the Egyptian population. So we're seeing high prevalence of diabetes as well. We're seeing a lot of the chronic, uh, chronic diseases um, being prevalent in Egypt. So Egypt, you would say, is kind of on an unhealthier track. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's part of the whole world it's, uh, that we're seeing a lot right. of um, increase in chronic diseases all over the world. Oh, okay. Um, all right. I have a fear of finding out anything wrong with me. I am afraid to go to the doctor. I am afraid to get diagnosed for anything, even a cold, nothing. I just don't want to know. Others are very afraid of needles. Um, that's a concern for a diagnostics company, right? How is IDH fighting those fears and encouraging regular testing? We started this since 2007. This was a marketing campaign that we started back then, uh, having the emotional side of things because we knew that people uh, are afraid of needles, as you said, afraid of testing, afraid of uh, going to labs. So we started by having an emotional side of, of the lab. So we, we had a slogan of talking to the emotional side of people rather than the, the quality and the, you know, and the scientific part. And I think this was successful in a big way. People started. Have you seen differences in numbers in the number of customers coming in? Definitely. Were you ever afraid of needles? No, I was never afraid of needles. Never, huh? I get tested all the time. All right, then give me an advice. For like, was there never a psychological barrier? Anna, it's easy, honey. It's just a trick and... And it gives you, you know, an idea about what's going on inside your body, which is quite important. 
which is what I don't want to know. I really don't want to know yeah, that. You don't want to know, and then eventually you will know. <laughs> better, better to know at the beginning of anything. True. Um, tell me what was the best and worst day. Your best and your worst day at IDH. Starting with the worst, and then we end on a happy note. <laughs> What's the dramatic questions? <laughs> Maybe I'll, t- I'll tell you my worst day in IDH that has nothing to do with IDH, actually. It All right. has to do with the personal thing that when when I I heard the diagnosis of my father that he was diagnosed with cancer lung, uh, I think, but I was at work. So I remember the day and I remember I was in my office. Um, so this, yeah, was my worst day. Um, my best day, um, a lot of good days in IDH, I would say. I, I don't have a particular day where I, I would say it's the best day, but uh, I had a lot of successes, um, thanks God. And um, It's not about that. It's about adding value to everyone, to patients, to employees, to uh, shareholders. And it was never about me. So what kind of goal do you feel like if I accomplish this for my company, for my customers, for the country, I can look back and say, I've done a good now it's time for me to relax, pass this on to whoever comes next. I'm not at this point now. I always think there is more to be done uh, and I'm never satisfied. So that's that's a problem that I suffer from. So I'm never really... It's one of those good problems, you know. Uh, I'm never really happy of what I've done. I'm always looking at doing better, which is maybe that's a good thing and it's a, it's a bad thing at the same time. I don't know. How's that a bad thing? I would... No, it's not a bad thing. Settling for something where it could be better? Why? Because you're always uh, on the run. You're always uh, pushing yourself in a way. You're never really satisfied. You're not uh, not relaxed. (laughs) So you never just calm down, smell the roses, take a vacation? No, I take vacations. But it's it's about being, you know, uh, happy with where you are and, and just satisfied and you don't want to do anything else. I don't have this feeling. Not yet, anyway. All right. Thank you, Dr. Hind. Thank Thank you you for letting us probe your company, probe your life, diagnose it, so to speak. (laughs) Thank you very much for having me and for your time. If you enjoyed this week's episode, hit the subscribe button on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your shows. Making It is produced by Enterprise, your morning briefing on business, finance, and economics. Subscribe today for free at enterprise.press. This season is brought to you by CIB and USAID.